grab your coat and get your hat. Leave your worry on the doorstep. Just direct your feet to the sunny side of the street. Welcome to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ 1180 AM. Please remember that opinions expressed here for educational purposes, for specific investment advice, consult your own advisor. My guest today is Paul Merriman. Thanks for joining me, Paul. Hey, it's great to be back, Ken. I, I always look forward to that music. I, huh. I, I'm always a little anxious, you know, at the start, but that always just relaxes me, and I'm ready to go to work. Good. Well, I think you're... <laughs> Your advice can put people on the sunny side of Wall Street, hopefully. And ah, I like that. <laughs> make some good decisions <laughs> okay. for the long haul. And that's what yeah. we're talking about today, long-term investing, asset allocation, diversification, you know, ways to manage risk. There's different types of risk. And uh, let's start off. I know um, you're a big fan of small cap value, and but value stocks have been lagging a little bit lately. What's your opinion on having an allocation to value stocks and continuing with that? Well, uh, you know, lately uh, it may be an understatement. It's it's been not just small cap, but value, large mm-hmm. and small, right. have lagged growth and large uh, uh, growth, both small growth and large growth for ten years, and and so it is real easy for investors to come to the conclusion. I mean, ten years is a long time. I'm almost seventy five. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, to think that between now and 85, I might not get what I'm due is a little upsetting. But the reality is that when we look back to 1928, and there's plenty of evidence about how large cap value and small cap value have done compared to similar growth portfolios, what we see is in about 15% of the 10-year periods, Growth and and uh, both large and small do better than value large and small. Mm-hmm. So this is normal. And the question from a lot of people I get is is maybe there's some major change in the market. And every time I think about a major change, I think, well, now are you suggesting that maybe bonds are going to be better than stocks for the long term? And they say, well, no, I don't think that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I could say, well, why don't you? Because for, for the last, uh, what, 18 years, long bonds have made more money than the S&P 500? That starts to sound like maybe there's something wrong with stocks. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I think this is the natural evolution of, of these kinds of asset classes. So my feeling is... If I'm talking to the kind of an investor who should have value and particularly small cap value, I am as as hopeful as I can be at this point. No reason not to believe in that premium for the future. Okay. That, and that makes sense, too. There's value stocks are value for a reason, but if you're buying in, that gives you a little protection on the downside. There's more merger and acquisition activity, and you're purchasing those things when they are to at a decent value, and hopefully they can climb from there. I think that's good advice. What's your opinion about the level of the market here? Do you think the market's too high to, to buy stocks, or 
Should people continue well, to I, invest that way? You know, that's, a, that's a good question, Ken. Okay. Uh, I, I have lived all my life with fear of what's just around the corner. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that when the market is down and dirty, the fear is really, I'm talking now about the fear, not my intellect, but just the emotion of it. The fear is there's some bad stuff coming. It's already been bad, let's say, and now more of it's coming. And Mm -hmm. when we get into these frothy markets, the other kind of fear kicks in, and that is they're going to take it all back. They gave us this amazing run in the market, and now something's going to happen to take it all back. Well, Mm -hmm. if I had invested the way I felt, the, both the fear and the greed and how I felt in the bad times and the good times, I would not have made half as much money as I did. I think the key is for all of us to get out of the business of trying to predict what's going to happen next, mm-hmm. have a discipline for young people. Obviously, that's a dollar cost averaging into a 401K or IRA. And for older people, retired people, it's having the right amount of fixed income in your portfolio so that you don't have to lose sleep when the market uh, decides to take a nosedive. But I think people should just stay the course with the strategy that got them where they are now. By the way, Ken, if they haven't gotten very far, maybe they should be rethinking their strategy because it has been an amazing market for a very long period of time. Yes, it has. This is one of the longest bull markets in history, depending on how you define it, and still off to record levels once again today. So, yeah, it's um, it's been quite a run, and it, it's inevitable at some point we'll go through another economic recession. We'll have a we'll have a downturn. Well, and here's the tricky part: if we think the time to get get out is when the next reset recession starts. We're probably very late. And if we think right. the time to get in is after the recession is no is, is over, we're going to wait for that to happen. All of history dictates that people, the market tops out long before the recession starts, and the bull market is on its way even before the recession is over. So if, if you think you're going to second-guess the market and do better, I just I just don't believe that will happen for very many people. And I'm always on the side of what's the probability. What's the, what way is it the highest? Not what way might it be if I get lucky. I don't want to depend on luck. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely don't want to rely on luck. Have a good long-term strategy that makes sense and something that you're comfortable with, too. Some people have different, uh, you know, when you let your emotions get involved, that can make things unsettling if your portfolio is too volatile too aggressive for your you know your personal taste so you gotta you gotta consider that too um we're we're just about ready for a commercial break you want to tell people how to find your website sure if they can spell my name paul merriman m-e-r-r-i-m-a-n dot com and there's just a load of free information all built to help each of you be a better investor. That's what it's about. Okay. Stay tuned. Be right back after this quick commercial break. Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ, 1180 AM, 
My guest today is Paul Merriman, and we'll be talking about asset allocation, long-term investing. Please remember that opinions expressed here are for educational purposes, for specific investment advice, consult your own advisor. Paul, once again, thanks for joining me. We talked a little bit about value stocks in the first segment. How much of a portfolio should be in value stocks, in your opinion? Well, I think it depends on the age of the investor, the knowledge of the investor, the risk okay. tolerance of the investor. Mm-hmm. In, in my particular case, almost 75 years old, half of my money is in equities. Okay. Half of that equities uh-huh. is in value. Okay. And, and, and so uh, I am a, uh, I'm a real believer in value. For my kids, because I've been doing my kids' IRAs, well, I've got... I've got a kid who's 52 or 53, so uh-huh. uh, that's not a kid anymore, I guess. But right. when they were all young, I did their IRAs. And so if you looked into my 23- and 26-year-old IRAs accounts, they have all value in their accounts and mostly small. So it really depends on the age and, the, and, and how aware people are of the risk. And that, as you mm-hmm. know, Ken... Getting people educated about what real risk is and what is just noise uh, is a difficult thing. And I'm, I'm happy to say I think my kids understand the difference, but my job is to help investors who aren't aware of the difference between value and growth and big and small and U.S. and international, et cetera. I want them to know the numbers, the facts, the evidence from the past. Okay. And, and I'm just I'm very confident value is a good place to put money long term not one company at a time ever never never at one at a time mm-hmm. but rather as a broadly massively diversified index approach which is much safer Sure the diversification is one of the simplest tools you have for defense and very important to diversify properly mm-hmm. Absolutely good way to reduce risk and and we've talked about this before. There's different types of risks, and there's no way to you know completely eliminate risk unless you just want to sit in all treasury bills or something like that. But then you have inflation risks, so it's about putting things as many factors on your side as possible. And Paul's done remarkable research for over looking at these different asset classes over the past several years and built some very good portfolios. Um, how about international stocks? Have how have international value stocks? perform compared to U.S.? Well, uh, over the last, and let's look at the last 15 years, because uh, that way we can see, including some good times and some bad times, Sure. and there were some real serious bad times, as we all know. But when I look back at the returns of uh, uh, emerging markets, mm-hmm. now uh, I'm, I'm going to talk about value here, if I might, because, uh, because yeah. I just did talk about value before, but Emerging market value companies compounded at about 11.2% over the 15 years ending yesterday, I'm sorry, last Friday. Mm -hmm. Now, if I look at the small cap U.S., that that compounded at uh, closer to uh, 11. Okay. Uh, If if I look at large cap value U.S., about, about 10. Uh, and and if I look at the internationals, in every case, other than the emerging markets, the small cap was a little lower, about 9.8 and uh, 7.5, which was compared to 10 in the U.S. So it was not a great period 
But it's interest for, for internationals. But, Ken, it is interesting that if you put a portfolio together of the U.S. big and small value and uh, international big and small and the emerging market uh, value, you end up with about a 10% compound rate of return, uh, which is a little less than what you would have made if you'd been all U.S. value. Mm-hmm. You would have made uh, probably about 10.2, 10.3. So more diversification, a small, a little bit lower rate of return, but theoretically, theoretically uh, less risk because of the greater diversification. Right. Right, because those markets could change at some point, and then you already have some money allocated there. That That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think the more that you have, theoretically, the less you worry. Okay. If you have all your money in one asset class, you know, the king of the hill, S&P 500, uh, uh, definitely the, the premier index, large cap index. And what we know is, is that, yes, from 1975 to 1999, it compounded at over 17%. Mm-hmm. But we also know that for the next 18 years, it compounded at about 5.4. Right. And it's really a mistake, I think, to put all your eggs in, in one index basket. You've got to spread it around. Mm-hmm. I don't know that the return will be higher. It should be if you've got some small and you've got some value from everything we know about the past. But maybe almost more importantly is... You don't have to go through these long periods, these long dry spells that can happen with any asset class. Right. Right. That that makes a lot of sense to me that, again, diversification is a, a, a simple tool, but you need to understand how to apply it and the best ways, um, you know, the best ways to use it to get the proper mix for your individual situation. Um with prices high, we touched on this a little bit in the first segment, but uh, how can you recommend buying any stock with the market at such high prices for someone that perhaps, you know, today that had money to put to work? Well, I'm thinking two, two groups of people I'm concerned okay. about. Mm-hmm. There are a lot in between, but there's the early investor, the first-time investor. Mm-hmm. And, and in many ways, uh, today, you could say feels like, a lot like it might have in the early part of 1929. Okay. That market had been on a tear. Things were great. The future looked great. Mm-hmm. And then we walked into the worst decade in stock market history. By the way, not so dissimilar from the 2000 through 2009 uh, market that the S&P 500 lost money at the end of 10 years. In fact, the S&P 500 lost about the same amount from 1929 uh, through 1938 as it did from 2000 through 2009. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. If you were a young investor, and if you were, for example, investing in small-cap value, oh, it was a wild ride. I mean, you would have gotten beat up on the downside, and then there would have been a rally, and you'd think, mm-hmm. oh, it's all over, but no, you get beat up again. And I mean, it's a terrible 10-year period, but believe it or not, by simply dollar cost averaging into that terrible bear market, 
that did okay by the end, you compounded your money at 10%. Mm-hmm. And, and that's 10 of the worst years in stock market history. Right. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Coming in at a high point for a, a new investor and the market starts to fall, just keep buying that sucker. Just don't mm-hmm. buy individual securities. Mm-hmm. Don't put it into some cryptocurrency. Don't speculate. Invest. Right. Now, for, for somebody like me, I don't think I want to live <laughs> through a 1929 through 38. I don't want to see the market go down over 50%. Right. And it just did. It went down over 50% twice during that 2000 through 2009 period. Yeah, I remember. But the bottom line is those people, they got to build their portfolio, go in. You always got to be prepared for the huge decline no matter when you start. Mm-hmm. But you go in and you maintain the right exposure to equities for who you are and what you need your portfolio to do. And if you can't figure that out, for crying out loud, get an advisor. Mm-hmm. That that makes a lot of sense. Have a have an allocation you're comfortable with and and stick with it. And if a younger person, your dollar cost averaging, or you know, you're, you're going to work that to your advantage. Um, exactly. What would you tell investors today who are about to retire with the market this high? They oh, might have a decline. Well, I tell you, it just it. Uh, you know, I can remember uh, back in 1999, early part of 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't. I wasn't calling for a, a big bear market. I, I did very publicly say, "Hey, this is not a new era. They have not rewritten." <laughs> the rules of investing, and and there's a lot of risk. And I really encouraged a lot of people to work beyond that point because you could you could just smell the possibility of these poor people. I mean, they were about to become poor if they didn't have a lot of money mm-hmm. and they were invested too aggressively. But but the fact is is that I really always tried to get people to retire having more than enough. And to protect against the decline that might come early in that process. That's the biggest risk we take in our life as an investor. Mm-hmm. And and so I also think even if you even if you only had an extra year of income makes a huge difference over time. If before you retire you can leave your, your retirement portfolio alone, let it grow for one more year and you give yourself a huge leg up. Okay. But then, of course, just like I said before, Ken, maybe at the most you'd be 50% in equities. Some clients were 60% in equities that I worked with when I was a, an investment advisor. Mm-hmm. But those were people who generally had more money than they needed. They didn't have to take uh, a little bit of risk. They could take a little more risk. Mm-hmm. But here again, everybody in that last couple of years of their work life should spend a little time with an advisor. I don't care if they're an hourly advisor or, or they're going to work on a percentage of assets, but find somebody for at least a year to work with to work through these things because people make quick decisions that unfortunately can change their life. Felt right at the moment because they heard something on TV that somebody said what to do. Those people on TV, those people who write articles like I do, we don't know anything about you. All we do right. is we try to address kind of a, 
the, the average person out there and try to get them educated, but we can't know what's right for you individually. That's the role of an advisor. True. Thanks, Paul. We're going to take a quick commercial break. Stay tuned. Be right back. Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ, 1180 AM, speaking with Paul Merriman. And, um, Paul, one trend we've seen, and, you know, you and I have been in the business a long time. You've been in it quite a bit longer than I have, but uh, expenses. Expenses were quite a bit higher. They've been trending lower. Um, that's good for investors. Uh, mutual fund expenses keep going down. In some cases, now down to zero. How can mutual funds stay in business when they're not able to charge fees? Well, it, it, I, I've learned so much about this business over the, I, I think I started in 1963, but I wow. I wasn't a professional until 1966. Okay. But I've done a, in fact, there's a video uh, that people can watch uh, at paulmerriman.com called The Habits and Attitudes of Successful Investors. Okay. And I talk about the amazing difference between when I started and what it's like well, even when I made this presentation a couple of years ago, when people couldn't buy mutual funds for free, if you will, of mm-hmm. course, you still have to pay the net asset value. But in the old days, they got 8.5% load for a mutual fund right. just to buy it. And then on top of that, of course, you had the expense ratios mm-hmm. and you had active management. So. Uh, oh, and then you had uh, regulated commissions and mm-hmm. regulated spreads between the bid and ask. Everything was built to make the industry more profitable. Right. And that pendulum, oh, my God, has it swung in the other direction because I never thought they would get down to free, but, but as you probably know, Ken, they're, other than Fidelity coming out with these uh, zero-fee uh, uh, mutual funds, there are also people who are letting folks, their their customers, trade commission-free. Right. Uh, and you say, well, how can they do that? And uh, the answer, of course, is that, at least one of the answers, is that there are other ways they can make money on the fact that you have that money invested in asset classes that are sitting under their control. Mm-hmm. In some cases, they can lend the securities within that account to other people and get paid for lending the securities. Now, they have to be fully collateralized. Mm -hmm. It's not putting your securities at risk. But the fact is, is that there's a chance for them to make a pretty good rate of return on just having access to those asset classes. Now, in the case of Fidelity... Uh, being able to offer, and at this point, I believe it's just two funds. But those two funds, number one, are very low cost, mm-hmm. very easy to manage because they're indexes, and they're indexes in the very large company uh, part of the market where the liquidity is very high and it's, it's relatively easy to manage uh, that portfolio. But everybody in the industry seems to think that the reason that these free funds are there, one, is a, is a marketing advantage over Vanguard. Mm-hmm. And Vanguard, while they have gone to free commissions 
on some 1,800 ETFs, they haven't decided to start taking all the fees out of their mutual funds. But it is, I'm sure, a marketing ploy, uh, and in the in the hopes that these people will come to their senses, because whether you're talking about Vanguard or Fidelity, believe me, there are a lot of things there that aren't free. I was just looking at Vanguard this morning, and they have some actively managed funds that cost pretty close to 1% a year okay. to manage. So mm-hmm. they've got some opportunities. Okay. That that makes sense. It's very important for people to understand that how much they pay in fees and what they get for the fees and what the impact can be on the long term, too. And I think that's something that really needs to be explained to investors. Yes, and, and this is the great work of John Bogle. Right. Uh, he just kept this topic right front and center. And I think most most investors have, have got that now. They, they understand that there is an advantage to lower fees. And I don't know, I really don't know, uh, how people who are charging full commissions are doing that uh, without having to do something very special for those clients. Right. That that makes sense to justify that, to offer some advice, help them when they have, you know, times they're making key financial decisions and so forth. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But what I think, uh, what I think Ken, is that people who are paying those higher fees often believe their only penalty is they're paying higher fees, but very often those funds, if they are mutual funds, are actively managed, which is a whole other set of of risks, if you want to call it that. I, uh, you talked earlier about me being an, uh, an, 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 somebody who's knowledgeable about risk. I've, I've found 25 different risks that people take, and every one of them can be managed. It doesn't mean you can manage every bit of the risk away, right. but you can manage a lot of that risk away. And boy, if you could cover all 25, that could be a home run. Okay. That makes that makes a lot of sense to me because, like you mentioned before, there are different types of risk. You just stuff your money un- under the mattress. You can have, uh, you know, you have inflation risk, purchasing power risk. So you do have to spread things out and man and understand the different types of risks that are out there to your capital you know last time we talked but it's it's fair to say by the way that fidelity has eliminated one risk (laughs) by by going to free Mm -hmm. yeah and that that you know a half difference of a half percent or so can make a big difference over 20 20 or 30 years of savings that that adds up exactly you know last time we talked you mentioned a new strategy that only required two funds and you usually, I think, recommended about 10 to 12 funds. Do you really think you can make as much with just two funds? Well, we're going <laughs> to find out. Uh, I, I, uh, when I made this date to come on the air with you, I had really hoped that uh, I'd be able to, to tell you more about, those, okay. about those, those two funds. But here's what I'm trying to do, Ken. Uh, you, right now on this show... I'm guessing you've got a loyal group of listeners, and you bring on guests on a weekly basis, and then your own experience put that all together, and they're knowledgeable people. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a huge, millions and millions of people who wouldn't take five minutes to listen 
to one of my podcasts or or maybe listen to your show. Mm-hmm. It's not what they want in their life, but they're still faced with making this decision. And a long time this this guy who who knows a lot about investing who says, okay, if you'll just take some big companies and some small companies and some value and some growth and some REITs and some emerging markets and you on and on and on, and pretty soon you've got 10 or 12 different funds in the portfolio, and then I want you to rebalance that every year. And they say, are you kidding? You know, I, I, I didn't even want to hear about the 10 funds in the first place would be their position. Mm-hmm. We've got to figure out something to do for those people. Okay. And right now, there is an investment that's great for those folks. It's called a target date fund. Mm-hmm. That's the good news. If they don't know what a target date fund is, they better find out, because that's what most 401k money goes into. But here's the problem. The problem is that they those target date funds are built to be for average investors. And here's what I hope the listeners can believe. By adding one fund to that target date fund and knowing how much you should have in it each year of your life, whether it's the year you're born or the year you start saving money for retirement, if you can just put two funds together, you will be able to get almost all of the return of the big, small, value growth, U.S. international REITs, emerging markets, and on and on. And if we can do that and make people have trust in that discipline, we are going to help a ton of young people. And that is the goal of this Two Funds for Life strategy. Okay. We're about two weeks away. I'm going to introduce it in Las Vegas at a conference there uh, in uh, later this month. Oh, I see. Okay. And maybe we can talk about it early next year, depending on your schedule, something like that. You betcha. I can't wait. Okay. Are you are you doing the money show down in Las Vegas or something? No, it's not uh-huh. a money show. It's the uh, a- annual conference for the American Association of Individual Investors. Oh, great. Okay. So it's uh, these are people who love 10 and 12 fund strategies. Right. What I'm hoping I'm going to convince them is to go home and show their grandchildren and their children a two-fund strategy that will do very, very well. Yeah, that that makes sense for a lot of people out there. They want something simple. They don't want something that's very complicated, that requires rebalancing uh, quarterly, or just have someone do it for them, or if they're doing it themselves, yeah, simplicity certainly helps people stay invested. Um, We're just about ready for a commercial break again. You want to Tell us where your website is and what people can find there. We've got about 30 seconds. Okay. It's paulmerriman.com, M-E-R-R-I-M-A-N. I do a podcast weekly. I've got a couple hundred articles that are relatively evergreen, hundreds of podcasts, free portfolio advice for Vanguard, T. Rowe Price, Fidelity, Schwab, ETS, mutual funds. It's my foundation that I, that I set up after I retired all built for financial education. Okay, stay tuned. Be right back with Paul Merriman. Welcome back to Ken's Bulls and Bears Report. This is Ken Roberts on KCKQ, 1180 AM. My guest today is Paul Merriman. If you have any questions for me, you can give me a call directly at 1-866-898-1860. Once again, Paul, thanks for joining me. Um, 
How much do you have in international equities? Do you think international stocks uh, will really make a big difference? Well, it's uh, that's an interesting question in that uh, let's just start with the S&P 500. Okay. Uh, because that's the the kind of the foundation fund for most people. Mm-hmm. And when you add small cap, whether it's U.S. or international, over time it tends to do better. Okay. When you add value, because the S&P 500 is a blend of growth and value, when you add more value to the portfolio, you tend to make more money than the S&P 500. And then when you add the international value, the same thing over time happens. And when you add emerging markets to the portfolio, and I've, I've done articles about this to show with every, every addition, what happens when you add these things in 10% increments? What happens to the risk? What happens to the return? They all make sense over a very long period of time. Okay. Over short periods of time, you wish you had the number one producer, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly when the S&P 500 is number one, and sometimes it is, you think, well, what do I need the rest of those for? I mean, I could have been number one. I, mm-hmm. I could have been a contender uh, if I just had the S&P 500. Right. So the whole idea is to do this over a very long period of time. And you were talking about risk a while ago, Ken. And one of the risks we have, believe it or not, is currency risk. True. And one thing you can do in your portfolio is you can have a portfolio that's partly denominated in U.S. securities and partly denominated in internationals. Mm -hmm. Now, if it were not for the emerging markets, we would expect those two groups of asset classes, U.S. and international, to do about the same. Emerging markets should make a little more. But here's what happens. Because of that currency difference, it doesn't necessarily lead to a higher return, but it does tend to lead to less volatility, Okay, which is part of what we're looking for through diversification. Mm-hmm. Having said that, I have told people if having money internationally is uncomfortable for you, if you're going to lose sleep, That's okay. You don't need it as long as you're doing a good job of spreading that money around amongst the large and the small and the growth and the value here in the U.S. market. But, yes, it does historically add a little bit to return and reduce the risk a little bit. I think, though, quite honestly, for many people, because I've got half of my equities personally, in international mm-hmm. equities, mm-hmm. Uh, for for some people, it causes stress that they don't have to have if if that's what it leads to. Because okay. I think investing is about getting the best unit of return per unit of risk with the with the greatest peace of mind, and that peace of mind part is the magic part. Okay, yeah, that definitely makes sense. It has to be something you're comfortable with individually. And emerging markets have not done that well recently. Do you think um, we've seen you know some problems in Turkey with their currency, some situations that down in Argentina? Do you th- really think emerging markets will pay returns that justify the risk? 
Well, they have. I mean, uh-huh. the good thing about uh, you talked a little bit about reba- uh, go about rebalancing and having to rebalance uh, mm-hmm. a portfolio. One of the reasons we rebalance is because something does very well, and then after it's done very well for a while, it doesn't. Uh, just like I mentioned with the S and P five hundred, you know, going for ten years uh, for a loss from two thousand through two thousand nine. Right. And if you had been taking some of that excess profit that was coming along prior to that terrible 10-year period, you probably would have done better. Mm -hmm. So here's what we know about emerging markets. And if your listeners don't know about the Callan, that's C-A-L-L-A-N, periodic investment table, Mm -hmm. they will love it because it's on the Internet and it shows... I think 12 different equity asset classes, maybe including a bond. Okay. And it shows every year going back to 1998, who was number one, who was number two, who was number 12. Mm-hmm. And you can see, for example, in, I believe, six of the last 20 years, of all those asset classes, the uh, emerging markets were number one, better than everything else. Okay. I'm sorry. I just looked at a note I made. Nine. Nine of the years. Uh-huh. They were number one or number two. But in six of the years, they were either in last place or second to last. Uh-huh. And when it comes to rebalancing, I mean, by the way, uh, uh, 2016, I think, was the last time that um, it was at the top of the heap. Right. But, yes, it hasn't been doing well for a while, because it had a huge run some years ago, but that's the nature of this of this terribly confusing process that nobody can know what's going to happen next. All we can be is experts on the past. Right. You don't know what's around the corner. It could be natural disaster, geopolitical events, and if your crystal ball is not working, you're not going to be able to predict those kinds of things. Right, Exactly. Um, actually, we could talk about you know the difference between gambling, speculating, and investing. Which what's most likely to hit the home run? Ah, <laughs> well, uh, I don't know whether you buy lottery tickets. Not very but, often. Uh, I guess there's no better home run that a person could have than uh, to win. I don't know, maybe a hundred million dollars. Uh-huh. With an investment, we want to call it an investment or a gamble of a of a dollar or two. Uh, the obvious problem is that one out of maybe two hundred million people are going to have this happen to them. So the odds aren't good. I'm I am just drooling. I can't wait to see. There's a study coming out about how much how much money people put into uh, lottery tickets in I think all the states. And right. some of the states, the, the numbers are really high, and I think to myself, oh, my God, if, if I could get those people to put that money into a Roth IRA mm-hmm. and invest it in an asset class that has a history of making better than 12% a year for, for almost 100 years, at the end of their, of their adulthood, before they retire, they could have a million bucks. I mean, literally, they right. could have a million dollars when you see how much money these people are putting into a lottery ticket. So the beauty of a lottery ticket or gambling is you find out right now, did I win or did I lose, uh-huh. and you got a chance to double your money or right. be broke. Mm-hmm. And everything I know about the past says 
You keep gambling, you'll end up broke. Mm-hmm. That's the way it works. Well, if you're playing against the house yeah. or you're buying lottery tickets and half the money's going to be, being given to somebody else and half is being redistributed, it's built to take all of your money in the long term. Mm-hmm. When you speculate, here's what investors need to know. This is so unbelievably important. When they've looked at the returns of all public companies that you could buy, less than 4% of them, as a group, hit a home run. Mm-hmm. 96%, more than 96%, average T-bill rates. That's from 1926 to 2016. That is Dr. Bessembinder's study. Uh-huh. It's, it, is, it is, the question is, did stocks out or do stocks outperform T bills? And it turns out that a ninety six percent of stocks on average get the return of T bills. Okay. So you speculate. You're looking to put a lot of money into one of those uh, companies you think is going to be in that four percent category, and you're just uh, um, optimistic enough, and you believe in your ability to see stuff that you think you're going to actually do that. Well, the fact is, is that you're way, way more likely to succeed in the long run if you buy all the companies, and that, of course, means index funds, Mm -hmm. and you get the 4% and you get the 96%, and with the S&P 500 for 90 years, you've gotten a 10% compound rate of return with small cap value over 14. Mm -hmm. So... I would much rather see people invest for the long term in the whole market than try to speculate and pick those that they think are going to be number one, because the odds are against them. We know about Microsoft's track record today, but it really hasn't done anything of significance since uh, 2000. Right. Right, and 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 yet a lot of people bought it in 2000, thinking Microsoft is the place to put your money. Well, now we know that it wasn't. Right, and there's so, a big difference between investing and speculating and gambling. Of course, is that when you go to the casino, you'll be in Vegas in a couple of weeks. The odds are against you. That's how that casino's there. They don't stay there by losing money. So over the long haul, the odds are against you. But if you invest in uh, Good portfolio, hold it for the long haul, the odds are in your favor. So that's that makes a big difference. It's almost, by the way, historically, if you've got time on your side, and if you're broadly diversified, it's almost a guarantee. Mm-hmm. You can't use that word, obviously, because sure. you can't know the future. Right. But it's as, it's as close to guaranteeing, I mean, I think about the bank. Yeah, they'll give us 1% or 2 or 3%. That's their guarantee. But when inflation is pretty much the same, mm-hmm. you didn't make any money. Right. You stayed even. Mm-hmm. Paul, thanks for joining me today. That was a great conversation. I'll look forward to having you on again soon. 